We are going to turn to Romans chapter 5, going to look at verses 1 to 5, but let me introduce it um, in this way. I don't know if you've ever bought a present for a loved one, for a child, a partner, friend, uh, that you know they are going to love, and you, you have this great anticipation that as they unwrap it, you've been dying to give it to them uh, for a long time. Well, for me, these verses, uh, verses 1 to 5, verses 1 to 11, really, of Romans 5, there's just so much good and wonderful things in here. And I, I know many of you, I don't know all of you, but I know that what is here is just ideal for you, and it is God's present, it is God's gift to us. I think it includes what a, one of my favorite summaries of what it is to be a Christian, but it's also a great answer to the question, if God loves me, why do I suffer? Paul and the Christians in Rome had their own sufferings, and sometimes things don't go right in our lives. Sometimes things don't work out the way that we had anticipated or hoped or sometimes even believed that God had promised. And that creates within us a questioning, a fear, sometimes a bitterness, sometimes an anger. And these verses deal with all of that. But let me just backtrack a little bit. If you are new here and you, uh, you don't know the Bible all that well, the book of Romans, let me just tell you where we're coming in because we don't just randomly pick uh, verses Paul was a Jewish teacher who'd become a Christian and is writing this letter probably from Greece to the Christians in Rome in the first century. They themselves have had a tough time and they also are experiencing internal problems as every church has. He wants to come to them but he's, he's not able to so he sends them this letter and in the letter he says in chapter one it's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's a messenger of that good news. He shows in chapter 1 that all humanity is affected by the major problem, and that is, this is still the case today, that our basic relationship with God is the one that has gone wrong. In chapter 2, he tells the Jewish people, or those from a Jewish background, that just having the Old Testament and circumcision is not enough, just being religious is not enough. In chapter 3, he emphasizes the need that all of us are sinners, that there isn't a single person here who doesn't need what he is offering and what the gospel offers. And in chapter 4, we looked at last week, he's uh, taken Abraham and he's explained how he's an example of someone who is, is saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by his works. And so in chapter 5, he now begins to say, he begins with a, a therefore, and he now begins to say uh, the fruit of that. We, we saw that the word that's used is justification, that we are made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. Martin Luther says that uh, St. Paul in this chapter, in chapter 5, he speaks with great joy and exceeding exultation. In the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. I disagree a wee bit with Luther because I think 
Romans chapter 8, which is what I'm really looking forward to getting to, is, is just wonderful. We're going to look at these words, and they involve um, peace and hope and grace and glory and love. And these are all great words, and they're all nice words. But let me also introduce it in this way. Sometimes you and I get very... Or, no, let me back off. I, you may not have this experience, but I get very frustrated at people using these words because they're, they're meaningless. I guess in the old days, we would say they're like motherhood and apple pie. Everyone's from motherhood and apple pie. Well, some of you are not for motherhood, and even less of you are probably for apple pie. But it was meant to be that, that it, was, it was just assumed. Well, every religious person you ever meet, every politician, everyone, oh, we're for peace, and we're for love, and we're for uh, grace, and so on. But what do they mean? What's the substance? Sometimes I think it's a bit like when people use these words, it's like someone giving a gift. They have a really fancy package, and it's really nice, and when you open the package, there's nothing there. It's just hot air. So Paul is not like that. There's a lot of substance in this, and we better get going if we want to finish before tea time. Um, let's go on to the first verse. Sorry, I, you need to move it for me, Tan. I can't. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one word, I think, that gets used more than any and, and that people want, and yet you feel that people don't grasp what it means or how it comes about. And of course, that's peace. Maybe not many of you are going to enter the Miss World competition, and I'm not saying that I watch it, but uh, I am told that apparently Miss World, it's not just enough to be pretty. You have to stand up and be interviewed and say what you want, and then you have to say, I want peace in the world, and I'm going to work for peace in the world. Well, we all want peace in the world. But some of us, what we are thinking about, if you think about peace, some of you going to work tomorrow, it's not exactly a peaceful atmosphere in your office or in your class or uh, in your factory or, or wherever you are. And you would like to have some peace at work. Some of you don't even need to think about going to work, um, going home. You would like some peace at home because your home has been a place of tension and trouble and difficulty. And then some of us drawing it even closer, if we were talking about peace, peace in the world, peace at work, peace in our homes. To be honest, what we want most of all is peace within ourselves. We have no peace. We are, we are struggling. We, are, we, we can't cope. We lie awake at night. We just, we're, we're not peaceful people in that sense. But what Paul says here is the basis of all these other things. He says, first of all, you need peace with God. We have been justi justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to get peace by going to a course on inner peacefulness. I'm sorry, but mindfulness, whether it's Christian mindfulness or not, is not going to bring you peace. I remember uh, once my daughter being told that if you want peace in the world, all you have to do, close your eyes, hold your hands out, and think pink, and then everything will turn peaceful. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> Don't waste your time. It just doesn't work. And then you go, oh, it's so peaceful. I remember a man coming into the church here, and as he left, he said to me, oh, David, that was so peaceful, man, so peaceful. 
Um, I kind of wish it hadn't been peaceful for him because he's just all over the place. Hadn't a clue what was going on, but hey, it just feels peaceful. Everything is peaceful. Um, those of you who are old enough to have grown up in the hippie days, you'll remember, you know, peace, love, and understanding, man. That's where we're at. Um, we want peace. But it hasn't happened because, look what it says, it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace without the one who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered to death and he was raised from death for our peace. Can I say here, there's a kind of paradox because those of you who have experienced near death or the traumas of death of a loved one or seen it in war, you know it's not peaceful. You know that death is, is the ultimate anti-peace, disturbing, beyond uh, our imagination. So how does death bring peace? Well, it's through the death of Jesus Christ that our peace comes. And I think here, later on in verses 6 to 11, verses 1 to 11 are really one paragraph, and we're not going to look at all of that today. I think verses 6 to 11 looks uh, much more at the objective basis, Christ dying on the cross for our death, uh, for our life. But I think here, the peace that's spoken of here, I think, it is a, I, I think it is subjective, primarily. It is peace with God, but from that comes that feeling. So for example, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you've got eyes, if you've got a mind, if you've got a heart, then there are so many situations that go on in this world, that go on in your life, that will mean you cannot have any peace. You're constantly agitated. You're sitting waiting as um, someone who, whose relative or whose friend, whose loved one is in theater in hospital. And you think, what if it goes wrong? You, you cannot. It's difficult to have peace. You're worried about your child traveling. You're, you're thinking about a situation at work. You're worried about difficulties in the church or problems in the world. I mean, I think if you were uh, in Hawaii this week and you got that text message, there's a, there's a missile on its way, get down, um, you're not exactly going to be pretty peaceful about it. And I think it is hard for us in our normal lives even, to have this peace of God which transcends all understanding. And that's why at all times we need to focus on our relationship with God and the other things that come along with that. Romans 8, as I've indicated, is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, and I think Romans 8 is an extended commentary on this um, about the life of the Spirit. And in Romans 8, verse 5, we read this, those who live according to their flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit 
is life and peace. It is possible to know peace in this world. It is possible to, to feel that peace and to be aware of it, and it comes through Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that we have and that we need. The second thing is we stand in grace. Let's move on to that. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we now have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What does that mean? We stand in the sphere of God's grace. We're in a gracious standing with God. Now, the, the image and the word that's used here carries this idea of going somewhere where we're not really supposed to be. Um, how can I? Uh, let's think. I go to Buckingham Palace, and I walk up to Buckingham Palace, and I say, I'm, I'm here to see the Queen. Yeah, right, son. That's not going to happen. Maybe uh, not as, as grand as that. I enjoy watching the, the West Wing, and there's a, a storyline in which there is a, a, a lawyer who works, a legal counsel who works as a junior counsel in the West Wing, and she's really terrified of meeting the president. And she's no way is she, she going to walk into the, into the president's room. No way is that going to happen. She doesn't have that level of access. And so she has to be introduced. Well... How do we come into the presence of God? We can't just come into the presence of God. We are not fit to enter into the presence of the God whose eyes are too pure even to look upon evil. So we need someone to introduce us, someone to announce us. And this is what we are told. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we now have access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. I think that the emphasis here, again, as, as it is throughout this letter, is on salvation by faith. Our natural tendency is to think we have to earn it. So um, I want to go and see the Queen. I have to work really hard, like Hugh Henderson, and get a CBE or an MBE or whatever it is, or might even be Lord Henderson, I don't know. Uh, uh, one of those things. Maybe you say, I have to really work hard. I deserve this to go into the presence of the Queen I think even when we become Christians, we still have this tendency to return to an attitude which says, if I do these things really well, then I will get an appointment with God. But Romans 8 tells us a different story. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. To go back to that analogy of the President of the United States and the West Wing, for those of you who know uh, that series, uh, the pre President Bartlett, his daughter is called Zoe. She never has to make an appointment to see her dad. She can walk in whenever she wants. Uh, and that, that is the way that it should be um, with parents and with children. But sometimes I fear that our understanding of our relationship with God is, well, I've wandered away from God and I, I don't have that access and I need to earn that access and I need to get back into a right relationship. I need to do this and then I'll be there. And, and 
Here, we are being told, but we have access by faith in Jesus Christ. We're in the temple. We're in the palace of the king. We do not fall in and out of grace. We stand in grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And again, that's very important. Some churches seem to teach, well, you get grace and then you need to get more grace and we will, you know, we will give you grace and you fall out of grace. And I think the image that Paul gives here is something very different. I think it's an image of being there and standing in grace, and once you become a believer, you stand in the grace of God. Calvin uh, puts it wonderfully. By the word stand, he means that faith is not a changeable persuasion only for one day, but that it is immutable and that it sinks deep into the heart so that it endures through life. It is then not he who by a sudden impulse is led to believe that has faith and is to be reckoned among the faithful, but he who constantly and so to speak with a firm and fixed foot abides in that station appointed to him by God so as, always, so as to cleave always to Christ. In other words, you don't say, I, I, I feel like I'm going to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I'm going to follow Christ today. What happens is you, be, you become so aware of who Jesus is and what he has done that when you commit your life to him, you're standing in grace for the rest of your life. So, that supposing everything else was stripped away, absolutely everything, every promise, every hope, every material possession, every other relationship, the foundation of your life remains this, that you trust in Jesus Christ and the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's easy to say God is good when a loved one is healed in answer to prayer, and He is good, and that's a wonderful thing. How much more difficult to say God is good when your child dies, and yet you still believe that. That's the real test, if you like. Not just that, but many, many other things. So we stand in grace. You, you, we believe in Jesus Christ. We have peace. We believe in Jesus Christ. We stand in grace. The third thing, at uh, the second part of verse 2, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, in chapter 4, Paul has said boasting about ourselves or uh, our works-based religion, that that's ugly and wrong. But here, there's something different. And he uses the word boast in the sense of exalt, in the sense of joy. We, we, we rejoice. We, it brings us joy in this hope that we have. Now, again, you and I, in today's culture, when we use the word hope, we, we use it in a vague sense. Uh, I hope that... Um, Dundee will win the Premier League. I hope that it's going to be a sunny day tomorrow. I hope this, I hope that. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's much more of a certain thing. John Stott says, Christian hope is not uncertain. It's a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. And that's, of course, what Abraham did. He, he against all hope, in hope, believed. It is the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? I love this. I just love this. I love it's Christ in us, Paul says, Colossians 1.27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
And the glory of God is what is revealed in the creation of who God is, as Paul has already said in Romans 1. That marvelous where you go and, and you, you see these wonderful views or you, just the, the wonders of creation. The glory of God is revealed in that. It's revealed in the heavens. The glory of God is revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as well as Paul is, is talking about. But we see that glory through a glass darkly. One day it will be totally revealed. Jesus will appear with great power and glory. And we're told that not only will we see the glory, but we will be changed into it. I think the hope of the Christian, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Sometimes I think in this life we get a, a greater insight as we go on. Sometimes you're reading something or you're listening to something or you're praying or you're walking somewhere and there's just something that gives you a sense of the glory of God, almost to the degree that you wish your life was over. Pascal, the Roman Catholic philosopher and scientist and so on, his, his books the pensées are just absolutely marvelous, but he kept in his coat a, a, a leaflet, a, a writing of an experience. He sewed it into his coat, so he took it all with him of an experience he had where he was praying one night, and he talks about the fire, the fire, and the glory. And I think there's nothing more that I would long for us as a church to know and to experience that sense of the glory of God and the beauty of God and the love of God that's why Paul in Romans 8.21 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, he's not being dismissive. He's, he's talking about heavy stuff when it comes to suffering. He's talking about death. He's talking about being beaten. He's talking about facing doubts and fears and persecutions. He's talking about things that, that weighed him down. And he says, but I think they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What would a world be like without suffering, without sin, without accidents, without earthquakes, without disease, without cancer? This would be the freedom and the glory of the children of God. John Newton, uh, I read this this week, and I, initially when I read it, I thought it was really hard. And I, and I said, no, no, Newton, you can't. He wrote a letter to a man who had lost his child, amongst other things. And that was a very common, Newton experienced that himself, of course. It was very, very common in those days. And Newton said, Something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I cannot be too sorry in one sense for the death of a child because I know they are being released from the sin in this world that is yet to come, that they would yet experience. Now, I thought it was quite a harsh thing to write, but the more I thought about it and in the context of which it was written, the more I thought, you know what, that's true. That's true. If you see it in this wider context, of the glory, the freedom, and the glory of the children of God. We live in a world that's full of suffering. And what Paul is telling us is, 
We boast in the hope of the glory of God because we are looking forward to the glory of God to be manifested and revealed in such a way that there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow. And so we boast in that. Again, Stock puts it beautifully. He said, our vision of future glory is a powerful stimulus to present duty. You've all got that leaflet. I um, don't know where mine's going. I better, oh yeah, here it is. We've all got this leaflet, you know, free to serve. Now, I know how we react to this stuff. We think, okay, uh, guilt trip, I have to do something, and all that kind of stuff. Don't. Please don't. The stimulus for service is not that we're thinking about what other people think about us. The stimulus for service is not that we, we're, we're trying to earn our way into God's good books or other people's good books. The stimulus for service is that we, are, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our vision of future glory is a powerful stimulus to present duty. So that's why you look after the children. That's why you care for the children. That's why you look after the sick. sick. That's why you help with the mentally ill. That's why you help with the poor. That's why you help with the rich. It's why you help... It's why you look at yourself. You're looking to something. You're saying the best is yet to be. And the future glory. What we do now for Christ is what lasts. And it's part of that future glory. And that gives us, I think, an attitude to service which is very different than one of slavery. It is the service of children, not the service of slaves. We do it because we love God and because we believe the promises and because we've been set free and because of the glory. Okay, we're going to look at two more, but before we do that, we're going to sing. Um, we're going to sing these, these verses, a paraphrase of them, Romans 5, verses 1 uh, to 6. I can't remember what the tune is. What was the tune again, Crawford? St. Asaph, St. Asaph, because we have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God through him who has been sacrificed. Uh, we'll stand and we'll sing these words and then we'll just spend a few minutes just looking at the last part uh, of these verses. Let's stand to sing.
Now, if, if these are the great benefits, we get peace, we, get, we stand in grace, we get hope. Verses 3 and 4 kind of seem counter to that. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Exalting or boasting in hope, in peace, and so on is one thing. Exalting in our afflictions, quite another. The um, trials and tribulations and the afflictions that are being spoken of here, the word that's used carries in particular the notion of suffering because of your faith. And I think that's primarily what is meant here. I do think it means other things, but includes especially this. Because the Roman Christians had suffered because of their faith. They'd made a stand because of their faith. And they were going to suffer. And he says, we rejoice in them. We glory in them. Now, that's not masochism. Masochism is a sickness of finding pleasure in pain. And any Christian who goes, oh, this is great. I'm suffering, is a Christian who's sick. Not, that's not spiritual strength and health. You don't want to experience pain or trials of any kind. And if you dispute that, just think of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when faced with the sufferings of the cross, said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Jesus did not go to the cross saying, yay, I'm looking forward to going to the cross. He, he, he knew the suffering he was to face. So the suffering that we face we're not being told here to have a kind of stoical, yeah, that's fine, that's just the way it is, that's how life is. But there's a reason. And I think the reasons that are given here are fitted in with the whole of Romans. First of all, um, suffering is the path to glory. That is true of Christ in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we did, we, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's difficult to think of anything in this life that gives us deep joy and real pleasure and real happiness that doesn't involve suffering in some way. Suffering matures us. Now, let me, uh, let me reverse that a little bit. It can mature us if it doesn't, if we don't respond with anger and bitterness. And Paul says how that happens. He says, first of all, it produces perseverance. It produces endurance. By definition, you need suffering for endurance because if you didn't have suffering, you'd have nothing to endure. So it produces this quality of endurance that you just keep going. Patience. And many of us are not patience people. Now, patience doesn't mean, again, stoical. It doesn't mean you just say, well, that's the way things are, and I just accept the way things are. Patience is when you are faced with really difficult situations and you can't fix them. Most of us are active people who like to fix things. Uh, normally, we find that tribulation or suffering or troubles are met with complaint and with hurt or with stoicism. But this is beyond that. It's seeing beyond that. It's endurance. It's perseverance. 
It's keeping going. Easy, easy to continue in the Christian life as though you were cycling down a hill. Um, there's a marvelous, I like, I've, I've cycled a couple of times up to Inverness, and see when you're going up Dromochter, it's a 20-mile climb. See when you're coming back the other way, cycling is the easiest thing in the world. It's the no hand, yee, this is great, anyone can do it. I took Emma Jane with me, and going up the way, that was a tough one. Coming out of Inverness was really, really tough as well. Oh, do we have to keep going? Do we have to? Yeah, honestly, it'd be worth it, it'd be worth it, it'd be worth it. But coming downhill, whoa, that was fantastic. Lots of us in the Christian life, we love the downhill bit. But the uphill bit, that's, that's when your faith and your stamina, it's actually when it's developed. Using the cycling analogy again, if, if, if you're always cycling downhill, you never get any muscles. And it's the same spiritually speaking. It produces perseverance, and perseverance, he then says, produces character. The character of someone who's been tested it's that of the veteran rather than that of the raw recruit. And Paul uses one of his favorite words, a word that he takes from the blacksmith, where the red-hot metal of the shoe, uh, the horseshoe or the plow is beaten into shape. God produces Christian character. You know, there, there's a kind of dangerous prayer that you can pray that God would make you more like Jesus. But what if God, to make you more like Jesus, what if it's not just a case of being zapped with the Holy Spirit and suddenly, wow, you're super saint? What if your faith has to be tested? What if you have to endure? What if you have to go through things? Well, Paul says that produces character, and character produces hope. Now, that's an interesting one because you go from enduring to character to hope. Why would character produce hope? Because... When you endure, because when you realize that you can't do this, that you can't fix this, then you've got a choice. Your choice is that you give up, that you resign yourself to bitterness, to anger, to stoicism, whatever. You just turn away, you forget everything. Or you have hope and you keep going. And that hope is dependent on God. You're forced to look to the future and to the bigger picture. In Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, however as it is written, what, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. If you genuinely believe what Paul said, that your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed then God has prepared things for you that in the, that's wonderful to hear and it's great to hear when things are going well. Where you really need to hear that, where you really need to grasp that is when things are not going well. All will be well. You know the story of the man who wrote, it is well with my soul. He did so after losing his family. We know, says Paul in Romans 8, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, for who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
Paul's a remarkably brave man to use the analogy of childbirth uh, as a man. Uh, I have done so several times uh, and have learned my lesson. Um, those of you who've experienced childbirth, you know exactly what is being said. It's an incredibly painful thing. And Paul says, yes, but, but what? The pain is nothing as compared with the child that you, you end up holding in your arms or nursing to your breast. And he's saying, this is what it's like. We groan inwardly. And sometimes it's so intense, that groaning inwardly, that it's, it's like the pain of childbirth. It is agonizing and you want it to stop. And you're saying, Lord, why? Why is this happening? And why is that happening? And why do I feel this? And God says, no, no. In this hope you're saved. Nobody's conceived what I have in mind for you. The things God has prepared for those who love him. You see, Newton was right. Because he wrote to that man and he said, I believe... He said, I cannot prove this, but I believe that all children who die in infancy are in heaven with Jesus, are included in the covenant. And he said, and your child, I believe that your child is with Jesus. Can there be anything better than that? You feel the pain. Well, we ourselves, we, we struggle with so many things. And we need, rather than just to get these things immediately fixed, we need to see that and to believe and trust that God has prepared Good things for us. In this life, probably. But certainly in the life to come as well for those who love him. And then the last one is verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we have peace. We have grace. We have hope. We can even glory in suffering. And then we have this love of God, because our hope is based on the love of God, and it does not disappoint us to be sure of God's love. You know, the worst thing for a child, the absolute worst thing, I think, for any child is, of course, not that they don't have an Xbox or that they, not even that they don't have health. It's a child who grows up not sure if their mom loves them, not sure if their dad loves them, but to know that your parents love you. That's a tremendous security. Perhaps one of the worst experiences that some of you have had here is being married to somebody and your wife or your husband, you're not sure if they really do love you. You're just not sure. To be sure of that is a wonderful thing. But to be sure of the love of God is the greatest thing of all. My most um, personal experience of that uh, was the lady, I've told many of you this before, but I'll say it again because it's still for me amazing, the lady in Borders who was, when I was doing an outreach event there and she ended up sitting at the front. She wasn't a believer at all. She was quite hostile to start with. And then at the very end, she asked a question. She said, David, how can you know that God loves you? She said, I don't mean everybody. I mean you personally. How do you know that God loves you? And I told her about the cross. And as I was telling her, her eyes popped open wide and her mouth was wide open. And, and she was absolutely stunned. And at the end, she said, I, I'm not saying I believe that. But if that's true, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. 
Now, I'm telling you that there were Christians there who didn't get the cross as much as she did. And I, I was so stunned by her reaction. And yet, why? Because that's it. How do I know that God loves me? Again, later on in Romans 8, we're, we're going to read that how, if, he's given, if he's given us Christ, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is the secret of joy and peace and freedom and everything. It's not somebody standing up and using the word God's love and God loves you and everything's wonderful. No, no, no. It's the gospel coming with real depth and real insight and real understanding and the reality of the love of God, a love that's so deep that Paul writes and prays, I pray that you will understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. Because it's not just a cliched phrase. And I think it's twofold here. I think it's the assurance, first of all, of God's love for us. God's love is poured abroad, abroad, shed abroad, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I think also, though, it's, it's the other way. It's as we become aware of what God has done for us, we respond in love. We love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. That's why you can't obey that commandment until you first experience the love of God and hear the love of God through what Christ has done. And it's from the Holy Spirit. Every believer is given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, this is so important, and we we will come to this again and again and again. The Holy Spirit is so important. I listened to a a service this morning where the preacher said uh, about Dunfermline Abbey, St. Margaret, well, St. Margaret is here. St. Margaret is in the men's group. As they, I'm going, for goodness, St. Margaret is in the men's group. And then she went, even worse, as, as they have their pies and their cup of tea and whatever. I'm going, oh my goodness, this is... St. Margaret is in the men's, St. Margaret's dead, you know, hopefully she's in heaven, even by being called a saint, we don't know, but hopefully she is, but St. Margaret is not in the men's group, and if that's what you're teaching people, but it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is here, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us believers, he, and look what it says, he, he pours out into our hearts, God's love has been poured out into our hearts, it's like a flood. It's like a cloudburst making us deeply aware of the love of God. Romans 8, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. If you become a Christian, you get this great gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes you a Christian. The Holy Spirit fills you. The Holy Spirit pours into your heart the love of God. Romans 8 again, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We're crying out to God, Lord, why? We're crying out to God in bitterness and anger and hurt and confusion and darkness and despair. And as we are groaning, the Spirit groans within us. And the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance. We don't know what to pray. 
And the Spirit knows, and the Spirit intercedes for us. Now, some people, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, argue that this is a second baptism of the Spirit. I'm not entirely convinced that that's wrong. I'm not entirely convinced it's right either. I just know this, that you don't become a Christian without the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. But all of us need, in the words of Ephesians, to keep on being filled with the Spirit. And um, it's an incredible thing to be assured of the love of God. And it's a desperately sad thing not to have that assurance, not to have that awareness. Some Christians are a bit like the old kids game. I was going to say girls game, but it was boys did it as well. When I was at school, you get a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. You know, depends which one you end up, whether God loves you or not. But this is saying, no, no, no. God's love is poured into our hearts. So let me finish with this verse from Isaiah 28, 16. Peace, grace, hope, glory, and love are found in Christ. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It's about Christ. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I like that translation. Will never be disappointed. It's another way of translating it. This is the sure foundation, Jesus Christ. You never be stricken with panic. Never disappointed. What's your foundation? If your foundation is your partner, if your foundation is your family, if your foundation is yourself, if your foundation is your religion, if your foundation is anything except Jesus Christ, you will be disappointed because everybody will let you down. But there's an old African-American spiritual, he has never failed me yet. He has never failed me yet. Christ never fails his people. Christ never lets his people down. And that's what is offered. To those of you who are not yet believers, that's what Christianity is. It's peace with God. It's hope. It's glory. Yes, it's testing and suffering and all the rest of it, but it's God's love being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you this, that you have never known and will never experience anything like that. That is the kind of thing that you would sell everything in order to get. That's what Christianity is. And you need to seek Christ. For those of us who are Christians, we, we are so tempted to look at our own hearts and our own understanding and to allow what the Puritans would call atheistical thoughts, which is not saying that there's no God, but what it is, it's, it's thinking evil of God, thinking bad of God, thinking that because we don't understand and we don't know that somehow he doesn't, but he does. And we look always to Christ. And that's why I want to finish with Romans 8. Because it says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died... More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Isn't that great, by the way? We just read the Holy Spirit's interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you. I'm sorry, you don't need St. Margaret 
or send anybody, or you, you, you certainly don't mean, need me to pray for you. Jesus is praying for you, and the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. And that's why I'm so happy to pray for people, because I just, Lord, it's yours, it's yours. And he does it. Can't be condemned. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for, for us. And this, this, to me, I don't know of anything more beautiful than this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You think your troubles are bad. You're talking here about the Egyptian Coptic Christians going into church this Sunday, not knowing if there's going to be a bomb that blows them all up. But who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? No, says Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You want assurance, there's your assurance. It's that, that's it. Nothing in all creation, not you, not me, not anything else, not time, not anything can separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus. That's why when you came to Jesus, you're standing in the grace. That's why this love is poured out into your hearts. That's why you mustn't believe the devil when he brings all the accusations and everything else against you, against God, against others. That's why you can walk out of this building this morning with your head held high and your heart filled because Jesus loves you. And how do you know that Jesus loves you? Not because you sang it in a song or a preacher said it, but because of what we are told here in God's Word, a Word which is sure and absolutely certain. Lord, we thank You for that Word. Bless it to us. And those of us who struggle or have our hearts filled with many other things, Lord, by the power of Your love, Your Holy Spirit being poured into our hearts, may those wrong affections, may those wrong thoughts, may those things that cause us to despair be removed, and may we be filled and see the beauty and the glory of Christ, whatever our circumstances. And may any here who as yet do not know you come to know you. In your name, amen.